Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, it took a few takes to get that intro down. Um, You'll get used you to know, the title. I, you know, it's, it's all right. It's all right. Uh, hey, look, I want to get something off my chest as we, we, we come to you from, uh, from Washington. There was a, uh, a very interesting uh, joint uh, Senate hearing on the issue of the Capitol riot, what went down. We heard from uh, the, 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 the two sergeant-at-arms. Uh, we heard from the, uh, the former head of the, uh, of the Capitol Police. A lot of new details um, and, and a, lot of, a lot more questions, frankly. But there was one moment, and this is what I want to get off my chest, that really... I don't know, dude. I, I, maybe I'm. Maybe I've been doing this stuff too long. But uh, witnessing what we witnessed on January sixth, you know, there have been few days uh, in, in in my life as a reporter where I have been so emotionally affected by by what I was witnessing. Um, witnessing the Capitol under assault the way it was, um, you know, something that that, that I I will never forget. And we all saw what happened, and we are learning more details about what happened, which is why when I saw Senator Ron Johnson, uh, the Republican senator from Wisconsin, um, use his allotted time to ask questions of, of these people. And by the way, this is also one of my pet peeves. You know it's been a pet peeve of mine forever about senators. Uh, too many of them, like, incapable of actually asking questions. And you've got people that you really want to get information out of, and instead, you know, they use their allotted Q&A time to, to make a little speech. So Ron Johnson used his time uh, to read, largely to read uh, an article from The Federalist by a writer for The Federalist who was describing what they saw uh during the um, during the siege and claiming that it was a merry band of uh, of 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 protesters? Anyway, I, I this just I, let, let's just play a little bit. I think Trevor's got 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 a clip. I and, and and this should come with one of those like warnings. You know, disinformation is about to follow. But I want I think that our listeners can handle this stuff um, and know what disinformation is when they hear it. But here is Ron Johnson, and again, what he's doing is he's reading this article uh, from The Federalist. Many of the marchers were families with small children. Many were elderly, overweight, or just plain tired or frail. Traits not typically attributed to the riot prone. Many wore pro-police shirts. All right, all right. So he's going on, Rick. He's going on, and he's, like, reading this account. Oh, this is, you know, I mean, these people were just fine. And, and, and listen, let's listen a little bit more. very few didn't share the jovial, friendly, earnest demeanor of the great majority. Some obviously didn't fit in. And he describes four different types of people, plainclothes militants, agents provocateurs, fake Trump protesters, and then uh, disciplined uh, youth. All right, all right, okay, just, Trevor, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. I mean, come on, Rick, fake Trump protesters? And this is a United States senator at a hearing about what happened on January 6th, and he's saying most people were, what was it, jovial? And, 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 the, and the, the crowd included fake Trump protesters, and, and those were the people? I mean, give me a break. This isn't... This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is just wacky. And it's, and it's actually dangerous, too. And what you're seeing is, even though we have 
a very incomplete portrait of what happened that date. We've got a lot of details. There's a lot we don't know, a lot we don't know about the president's role in real time as well. Even, But even as we have this incomplete historical record, you have active efforts to rewrite the history by people that are loyal to President Trump. And it was entirely predictable. I think anyone that, that was thinking about what was happening on January 6th could see the next turn of the screw and see this coming. But the, the idea that a senator would suggest that this was the work of provocateurs, non-Trump supporters. Uh, the idea that these were, you know, that they loved the police, where they were literally attacking the police, uh, the, the, the friendly, earnest, jovial demeanor. Look, the, the Federalist piece was a first-person account. I'm not going to question whether one person took that away, but the idea of reading that into the Senate record uh, at the first Capitol hearing to get to the bottom of what happened and try to avoid it again. Is is nuts, and it, it doesn't reflect reality. But I think in this week that President Trump is coming back onto the national stage with his CPAC speech this weekend at a very Trumpy CPAC uh, over the next couple of days, uh, you're seeing that effort uh, by Republicans not just to absolve him of responsibility, as we saw in the acquittal vote on impeachment, but to say, you know what, this wasn't Trump at all. He had nothing to do with this, and it, 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 to the extent that bad things happened, then it was it was because of provocateurs. And, and I think this is, it, it's very important for us uh, to, to understand what happened and to not allow a, a distortion of the record. And I think that Kevin McCarthy's yeah. words are actually very important on this because Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, who has been all over the map on a lot of this stuff, uh, said at the time, this don't, you know, and, and, and I know for a fact he told Trump directly, don't say this was Antifa. Um, this, you know, th th so you cannot redefine what happened. What happened, happened. Now the question is what to do about it and how to ensure it, it doesn't happen again and how to hold people accountable. There's a, there's a very good write-up today uh, in the New York Times uh, by uh, Jonah Bromwich about two people who were arrested, recent arrests, two New Yorkers. And it's very telling. I mean, one is a guy by the name of Thomas Webster, who is a retired New York City police officer. He actually, uh, before his retirement uh, uh, in 2011, had been assigned to security at Gracie Mansion and City Hall, if you can imagine. A retired Marine. And he was, uh, I mean, the, the video of him is truly shocking. Uh, he, he was uh, taking that metal flagpole um, and using it as a weapon uh, against 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 police officers. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, but his lawyer, <laughs> I think, a, a very interesting point in in, in response to this, uh, said of 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 his client, he went there as an American citizen to protest an event that was urged on by our former president to protest an issue that Tom felt very strongly about. That's protecting the Constitution. Okay, that's bonkers. But what's important is this is a guy caught on video doing some of the most violent of the acts we witnessed, who his lawyer, one of many, we've heard this from several others before now, uh, saying that he was there basically because Donald Trump asked him to be there. Then it mentions a second person who has been arrested, uh, who stormed through the broken glass, a guy named Philip Grillo. Uh, who is a Republican, local Republican leader uh, in Queens. Uh, he is uh, listed, I, I don't know how the 
party organization works out there, but it's the 24th Assembly District. He's listed as the, uh, the local leader. It's a district uh, that, that he calls President Trump's hometown district. He's one of the guys uh, uh, arrested there. So let's not like pretend that it was a bunch of happy-go-lucky, uh, if a little irritated, pro-Trump protesters and then these agent provocateur, you know, fake Trump. I mean, give me a break. It's just, I mean, it's... Yeah, you're, you're right, John. Anyway, uh, but again, as you point out, a, a, a United States senator, and he's, and he's not just... I think you made a very important point in, in, about the article. This is the Federalist. I mean, okay, we, we can debate the merits of the Federalist another time. But whatever you think of the article, Johnson took the article further. This is a first-person account. So even if you were out there, first-person, you know, you're on the ground, maybe everybody around him was, you know, these happy-go-lucky, jovial uh, Trump protesters. That doesn't tell you anything about what actually happened. And Rick, another thing today, uh, Kevin McCarthy and the Republican House leadership had a press conference, you know, various questions asked, but it was the last question that was something. It was about Donald Trump's planned visit on Sunday to CPAC, the first speech by the former president since he left uh, Washington. Let's just, 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 you got to listen to that. Yes, he should. Congresswoman Cheney? Uh, that's up to CPAC. I've, I've been clear in my views about uh, President Trump and, and the extent to which following the extent to which following January 6th, uh, I don't I don't believe that he should be playing a role in the future of the party or the country. On that high note? <laughs> now, Rick, um, <laughs> it's not even just the, the words. You hear McCarthy say yes, you hear Liz Cheney saying, you know, it's up to CPAC, but, uh, you know, but Trump should have no place in the Republican Party going forward. Um, it, the, the, the body language is, is, just, is just something else. Um, you know, Liz Cheney is somebody that I've known for a long time. And when she is on a mission about something, she does not back down or back off. And she is clearly on a mission to rid the Republican Party of Donald Trump. It may be a, <laughs> I mean, it may be a lonely mission right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but uh, it's really something to watch. And CPAC is going to be something to watch, John. As you know, I mean, they they have packed the lineup of speakers with uh, with people named Trump and Trump friendly uh, politicians uh, operatives. This is Trump Fest and. Uh, you know, the Conservative Political Action Committee, we've covered a lot of these over the years, John. I used to love going to them when they, when they were here in, in the Washington area. This one's down in Florida, uh, and the president making a trip there. It is going to be fascinating to see a display of Trumpism um, from an organization that's had quite a bit to do with charting the future of the Republican Party in the past. And, you know, Liz Cheney is not invited. <laughs> Let's say that. She's, she is not going to be anywhere near CPAC this weekend. You know, there's a, one other name that's not on the agenda at CPAC. I don't know if you caught this. A name that's not on the agenda? Yeah, yeah. Somebody who's been a regular at CPAC over the years. Um, Ooh, that's intriguing. Pretty prominent name in Republican politics. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and say pretty prominent name in the Trump administration for the past four years. I don't years. know where you're going with this, John. I, yeah, I mean, who, who could I be talking about? Not on the agenda. Not on the agenda. It could be anybody. Hmm. Yeah, but I'm, I mean, this person, I, I'm going to... 
a really, really prominent name on the on the on, on the Trump. Is this person, this, the, is this person a former governor of Indiana? Is this person this person this person House was part of the Trump administration for all four years. Very active in the campaign, both campaigns. Actually, now that I think about it. Mm, what do we think's behind this? Where where is the vice president, the former vice president? What does he have no, in the plans? Mike Pence, former conference leader in the House, Republican conference leader in the House. Uh, he will not be at CPAC. Mm. Anyway, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will be joined by the number two, the second most powerful. Wait, am I saying this right? I guess technically, the person <laughs> I'm talking about is the second most powerful Democrat in the Senate. But then I'm thinking, what about Joe Manchin? Uh, anyway, we'll be back with Dick Durbin in just a moment. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Senator Dick Durbin, of course, the majority whip in the U.S. Senate, also the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Senator Durbin, thank you and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I, I, I want to get right to... Uh, you, you presided over the confirmation hearing for, for Merrick Garland, and we were just talking about the hearing uh, yesterday on the, on the Capitol riot. I, I, Garland made it clear that his, uh, one of his top priorities is going to be holding those responsible accountable. The hearing said very little about Donald Trump, um, you know, which is, which is fine, but I'm, but I'm wondering your view. Do you think that as uh, as the Justice Department, um, you know, goes after those that were directly involved on the ground and starts going up up the chain, do you think ultimately we're going to see Donald Trump face legal responsibility for what happened on January 6th? Well, I was following your question and ready to make an affirmative answer until you put in the one word, legal responsibilities. If you're suggesting a criminal prosecution, uh, then I'm going to have to withhold the statement because I, I, I really don't feel that I'm in a position to uh, make any suggestion along those lines. Will he be held responsible? Yes. I think morally, politically, uh, historically, uh, even though there are revisionists at work in the Republican ranks that are trying to blame Antifa and everyone else for what happened on January 6th, uh, I, I think what I've read so far, uh, there is clarity in, in connecting the president, Donald Trump, with provoking and inciting that mob to its violence. So, I mean, I'm not asking you to make a recommendation uh, uh, for the soon-to-be attorney general. I, 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 what, what I'm asking is, as, as an observer of this, and I know you've spent as much time as anybody uh, uh, looking at this, uh, do, do you think it's plausible that that and 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 I, I suppose there's 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 legal and and, and civil culpability. There also uh, are there's also at least one uh, a civil lawsuit that names the president. Um, I mean, do you, do you think we're going to see in, in in a courtroom Donald Trump basically held to account for this? Since there, I can't think of a single historic precedent uh, that would suggest criminal prosecution. F- of a president for his actions while in office, uh, I'm I'm not going to suggest that's going to happen. I, I, I that may be so far fetched it may not even be within the realm of possibility. Uh, on the other hand, since it would be a case of first impression, maybe uh, it's anyone's guess uh, what would happen if challenged. 
When you heard Judge Garland talk about following the investigation upstream, uh, where, wherever it leads, what did you take that to mean? Uh, beyond the people that are already being charged, the people that were actually there, where do you feel uh, your role as uh, as the as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee? Where do you feel like the investigation needs to go? How far upstream, and in, in what directions? Are we talking about money? Are we talking about people that urge them on? All of the above. Certainly, we know that the activities of this group this mob, this insurrection, uh, are being held to account by the Department of Justice. Over 200 have been arrested and 500 under investigation. So uh, as of the event and everything that followed, there's an active investigation, been described as one of the most historic and complex investigations in the history of the Department of Justice, just to put it in perspective. But uh, I, I took that upstream question to mean, uh, I think it came from Senator Whitehouse, to mean what happened, what preceded this event, what planning, what uh, type of conspiracy, if there was one, uh, what was it uh, that led to this uh, and the different groups that seemed to merge together on that day? And, and picking up off the hearing yesterday, there's going to be additional hearings. Senator Klobuchar, Senator Peters, and others are, are engaged in. There'll be House hearings as well. Where do you feel like congressional responsibility to learn the answers ends? And, and what, are, what are the prospects of the 9-11 style commission um, if, it, if it is more equitably balanced between Democrats and Republicans as some Republicans are talking about? Do you feel like that's uh, there's a prospect of doing that, but just changing some of the partisan uh, breakdowns that we're seeing right now from Speaker Pelosi? I think we're going to follow the model with the 9-11 commission. Lee Hamilton and Governor Keene from uh, New Jersey, a Democrat, a Republican, both respected. Uh, who led up that uh, commission investigation and came up with a good report. Uh, I, I think we ought to follow that model, and it would be a good one. Now, what do I see personally in, involved in this? The Senate Judiciary Committee has a question as well. What are we doing about this rise in domestic terrorism? Uh, I have been pushing this issue long before January 6th because I could see it happening uh, in Charlottesville and many other places where groups inspired by white nationalists and white supremacists and, and far-right leanings were becoming more militant and brazen in their activity. These militia used to cavort around in the woods, uh, all dressed up with face paint on, uh, carrying automatic weapons, and they were kind of quaint in their day. And then they crossed the line, and we started seeing them arriving at state capitol buildings brandishing their weapons and, and defying the, the leaders in, in, in the states. It, it went so far as to in, in involve criminal conduct, of course, with the uh, threatened kidnapping of the governor of Michigan. So uh, I believed it needed to be taken more seriously. We've seen it uh, displayed uh, anti-Latino uh, killings in Texas, uh, anti-Sikh killings in Wisconsin, it was going from bad to worse, and we've got to take it more seriously, and I want this committee to uh, monitor that progress as it goes. I, I want to uh, switch topics to uh, to the legislative uh, agenda and, and, and the Biden's agenda. Actually, let's, let's get to the uh, to the Biden confirmation uh, confirmations as well. Uh, Joe Manchin, um, I, I know you're the majority whip. I know that uh, Chuck Schumer is the majority leader. Um, 
it seems that on any given issue, uh, well, obviously with a 50-50 Senate, anybody can be the um, uh, even more powerful than, than either one of you two. Um, were, how was it that you were surprised, as, as at least I've seen reported, you can correct me if, if that's wrong, uh, uh, that, that, that Manchin had decided to vote against uh, Neera Tandon, and, and how much of a challenge is it going to be to uh, to keep him online, he's also come out against the uh, you know the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Well, uh, I think you put your finger on it. When the fifty fifty Senate, uh, any person can stop the train. Uh, and in this situation, uh, Joe, if he hasn't stopped it, he slowed it down uh, because uh, the White House and supporters of Neera Tannen have to find a Republican vote to replace him. Uh, no mean feat at this point, uh, but I think still within the realm of possibility. Uh, let, let me just say that uh, I understand this as I looked into it more closely and, and understand the friendships and relationships. Senator Collins also uh, came out against uh, Ms. Tandon, uh, and she felt aggrieved, uh, and rightly so, uh, for some of the things that were posted and tweeted against her during her campaign. Uh, she expressed the same to me in a conversation. I know she felt uh, hurt by a lot of things that happened in that last campaign. I wasn't surprised that she opposed Ms. Tandon. And Joe Manchin and she are doing a lot of things together. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain that her feelings were not lost on Joe in making his own decision. But you were, but you were, were, were you caught by surprise? Did you, did you know before he announced it? As to the timing of it, yes. I was certainly uh, caught by surprise as to when it was announced because I'd been in some conversations with both of them uh, a few days before, and that but that subject didn't come up. Uh, as I thought about it afterwards, I just explained to you here. Uh, I think their their personal friendship uh, had something to do with Joe's decision. One through line that that uh, that I've been picking up on that I'm curious your take on Senator uh, having having worked with White Houses friendly and maybe less friendly to to your agenda over the years is the the apparent lack of consultation with senators on this. We we heard from Senator Portman. Directly, Senator Manchin. Uh, these th- the concerns about Neera Tandon were out there, and some of them were. Some of these senators were saying, "Hey, I wanted to have a dialogue with the White House, and it just wasn't there." Do you feel like there's a lapse here? Is there something missing here? And does it have a broader, broader implications for the Biden agenda that that they need to be talking to senators cognizant of that fifty fifty split? Well, let me say this: uh, I know the people, many of them personally. One is a former staffer of mine who are involved in Senate liaison, and they are extremely competent talented people and hardworking. Uh, and so I, I give, I can see that point to them. They are also in a startup mode uh, and a new president uh, right off the bat has to uh, show uh, his skills uh, in dealing with Congress to put together his team, his cabinet. So uh, there is a, a real uh, pressure on uh, because of that. I, I've asked uh, in the most general way whether some of these Republicans were consulted and the White House has said it, be, it became increasingly difficult to get through the staff to the member. Uh, so I don't know where the blame lies, but I will just say the uh, the bottom line is this. Uh, there has to be an outreach by the White House to every senator who could conceivably support their nominees uh, and an offer to discuss it. Uh, that That is just basic Senate 101, and I, I hope that if it hasn't happened to this point, it will from this point forward. One would think that if there's anybody in the universe that would know basic Senate 101, it would be Joe Biden. He probably wrote the primer. Uh, <laughs> he, he's been at it for longer than anyone else I know and was as, as good a practitioner as I've ever seen. 
Do you, do you think the uh, what 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 ultimately happens with the minimum wage and whether or not it's? I, I know we're waiting on the parliamentarian. Also, maybe one of the most powerful people <laughs> right there with Joe Manchin. Um, but 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 ultimately, do you think that's just going to have to be a fight that's fought uh, outside of this um, uh, COVID relief bill? Well, it may have to be. Of course, the ruling of the parliamentarian could decide that issue initially. But if it is uh, permitted in the reconciliation bill, uh, I hope the debate goes forward. Uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, it's going to be easy. In fact, it may be a problematic uh, issue. But uh, we shouldn't walk away from this. I mean, honest to goodness, how many speeches have we all given about the inequality in America? and the fact that people who are working hard every day can't make ends meet, even before COVID-19. And to think that the basic wage paid to American workers is insufficient to keep them above the poverty level, if you have any family at all dependent on it, is a reminder that issues of economic justice should go up, go beyond speeches to be reflected in the policies and laws of this country. This is long overdue. And I, I'm willing to be open and open-minded when it comes to suggestions on how to do it differently. But I really believe the fundamental premise is sound. If you care about working families and you don't want them holding two jobs and still struggling to make ends meet, you've got to give them a break. And a break means a decent wage. Uh, Senator Durbin, before we let you go, uh, uh, we got the first glimpse of uh, Chairman Durbin in the Judiciary Committee with the uh, with the with the Merrick Garland hearings, and congratulations on that. It seems like he's in a in a good place, going to get a bipartisan vote on the floor, uh, probably next week. Uh, what kind of preparations are you engaged in now for the potential of a of a Supreme Court uh, nomination? Obviously, there is no vacancy now. There's always talk about retirements, but is there anything that you're doing already, or that the staff is doing already? Uh, give us a glimpse into what those hearings, if they happen under your time as uh, as chairman in the Biden presidency, would even look like. So to use a baseball analogy, we've just finished the first game of the season, and you're asking who's going to pitch in the World Series. Uh, Isn't that how we play the game? That is your job to ask the question. Let me tell you what I'm doing. I, I think it's the right move. First, I'm uh, trying to establish some basic standards of civility uh, in this committee. Chuck Grassley is my friend, and people throw that term around here loosely, but I, he and I have a record to prove it. We've worked together on a lot of things on a bipartisan basis. The actual scheduling of the Merrick Garland hearing was a result of a bipartisan compromise. I wanted to get Merrick Garland up as quickly as possible. Chuck needed to get home on the president's week uh, recess to keep his pledge of visiting every Iowa county each year. Uh, we worked it out, and we did it on a bipartisan basis. So I, I, I want to start with that premise that you can be respectful and civil to one another uh, and, and make this committee work. Second, I think this committee uh, really has such a great reputation. It goes back to 1816. There's hardly a major issue in my lifetime that the Senate Judiciary Committee didn't touch at some point, and I want to restore that a reputation to the committee. Third, we've got some fabulous members of this committee, uh, really very competent people who are very concerned about various issues. But boy, do we represent the polar opposites of the United States Senate if you just look at the membership on both sides of the table. So I'm hoping we can prove uh, the naysayers wrong, that we can find some common ground on issues. And that's what I've set out to do, already reaching out to the Republicans individually, talking to them about their priorities and how they fit with our priorities. 
Well, uh, as somebody who has spent a, a career uh, on the ground often in Iowa and visited many of Iowa's 99 counties, but certainly not all of them. I, I even used to live, uh, you know, in South Dakota uh, and still, again, a lifetime not visiting all 99 Iowa counties, although many of them, I, I, I know what a feat that is. <laughs> For Chuck Grassley to do it, and it is it is something of a marvel. Uh, so, uh, Senator Durbin, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. So, uh, we hope you'll come on and, and talk to us again soon. Anytime. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Thank you, Senator. Bye bye. All right. That is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Join us right back here next week.